Father, thank you for scripture that we have read this morning that has encouraged our hearts about your grace. Thank you for prayers that have been prayed, songs that have been sung. Thank you for the faithful dissemination of your word in Sunday school this morning, for faithful teachers that you have blessed us with. We thank you. We honor you. And we thank you for your providences in our lives. As we have just sung, some of them come with dark clouds. And even as Cooper exhorted us, might we see the smiling face behind the dark clouds and might we see your mercy in our difficulty. It's fitting to pray that even as we come to Zechariah 11 this morning. Would you give us understanding of this passage, clarity, with a passage that um, is among the more difficult to understand? And so would you reveal its truthfulness to our hearts? And then would you work kind providence of mercy in us behind the dark clouds that are in this chapter? And so would you lead us in that way this morning? As we always pray, Father, would you transform us? For we need transformation, we need change, we need growth, we need greater maturity, and we need hope. Would you give us each of these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A few years ago, a photographer accumulated several photos of some of the most famous places in the world to which he had traveled. Some of you may have been to some of those places and may enjoy some of the reminders through his photographs of these great places, um, magnificent places in the world. Maybe you remember them. See if you remember them the way he did. Buckingham Palace, London. Favorite place for Ray Jean and I when we were there a number of years ago. We loved Buckingham Palace. What about the Mona Lisa? That's Ray Jean's favorite place to go. She was in Paris on one occasion with our daughter and she told me all about going to the Louvre and seeing the Mona Lisa. Or what about Lenin's tomb in Russia? Or the Great Wall of China? I don't know that anybody's been there, but perhaps some of you have been privileged to go to China and see the Great Wall as this photographer did, or the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. I was there a few years ago with my friend Dan Kirk, and uh, we went to the Wailing Wall and saw something similar, something similar. Some of you may have been to Stonehenge. You know, you go to London and you want to go see Stonehenge as well, or some of you are more familiar with this one. Surely many of you have been to see the Statue of Liberty in New York City, as these dear folks were. Or the Hollywood sign in Los Angeles. That looks familiar, doesn't it? What about the White House? That's a well-known place. And the Lincoln Memorial, one of the favorite places when we were in D.C. a number of years ago to go and see. Sound familiar? Look familiar to you? I suspect you don't remember those places quite the way my photographer friend, actually he's not my friend, but my photographer that I stole the pictures from the Internet on remembered them. He was in those places, but his camera was turned in the wrong direction. And he missed 
Actually, he didn't miss. I think he got the real pictures too, but he missed them. That makes for some humorous pictures, a little levity. But there's danger in looking at the wrong objects, isn't there? You think about it spiritually, and you know that. If you go in the wrong direction, there's danger ahead. The greatest danger is in going away from and rebelling against God's commands and God's provision and attempting to live life by your own standard. There is immense danger, infinite danger, eternal danger in failing to live under the authority of Christ the King. And it is that theme that dominates Zechariah chapter 11. We think about Zechariah, and we've been teasing for months now about Zechariah 14, and we've been getting little glimpses of the hopefulness that is ahead for us and in the return of the Messiah King to Jerusalem to ascend to his throne and to reign for his, from his throne through the millennial kingdom for a thousand years and then on into eternity. Zechariah finishes with triumph and mercy and power and victory and authority and it's glorious and we're looking forward to that day. And while that is true, Zechariah is recognized as a somber counterpoint to that glorious chapter. Zechariah 11 is recognized as one of the darkest chapters of the book, if not all of the Old Testament. And not only that, it is, it is this tremendous counterpoint to what just preceded. Remember what came at the end of chapter 10? It was only last week, so hopefully you remember. God talks about regathering His people, right? I'll bring them back from the land of Egypt, 1010. I'll gather them from Assyria. There he's talking from, from the south and from the north. Wherever they've been scattered on the globe, I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no room can be found for them. The land, the promised land in all of its extent is going to be bursting. And he, God, will pass through the sea of distress leading them. And strike the waves in the sea so that all the depths of the Nile will dry up and the pride of Assyria will be brought down. The scepter of Egypt will depart and I will strengthen them in the Lord. And in his name they will walk, declares the Lord. Chapter 11, judgment. And just, frankly, it just doesn't seem to fit. And so we've got to wrestle through that over the next couple of weeks. Along with that. I started studying this chapter and was going through it and thinking, I don't know if you've ever done this, Keith, what am I going to do with this? Where's this going? And and frankly, what does it mean? And I was comforted by the time I got to my commentators who all recognize that this is a notoriously difficult chapter to understand. Several writers have said it is one of the most difficult sections in the book, and in fact, One commentator said it is the most inscrutable, perplexing chapters in the Old Testament. The most difficult chapter in the Old Testament to figure out. So here we go. This is my shot at it over the next few weeks. Honestly, I thought about how to break it out. And I'm not actually following the break in the text because there's two short sections of 
three verse section at the beginning, a three verse section in the, at the end and an 11 verse section in the middle. And I knew I couldn't do 17 and I knew I needed more than three, but I knew I couldn't do 14 either. So here we are. This is my shot at it. Verses one to six. Let me just simplify it. There are terrible consequences for rejecting the Messiah. Horrific, damning, eternal, miserable consequences for rejecting the Messiah. In these verses, the prophet will first deliver some bad news about the coming judgment. And then he will tell us why the bad news is coming. There is bad news ahead. And why is that bad news coming? Let's think first of all, verses 1 to 3, about the coming judgment. There is, as I've already noted, a significant contrast between chapter 10, verse 12, and chapter 11, verse 1. Though there are some similarities between chapters 10 and 11. Chapter 10 similarly begins to this chapter in that it also condemns ungodly shepherds. So we see that in verses 2 and 3, right? The teraphim of chapter chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. The teraphim speak iniquity, diviners see lying visions, they tell false dreams, they comfort in vain. Therefore the people wander like sheep and they are afflicted. Because there is no shepherd, so my anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the male goats. For the Lord has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic horse in battle. So verses 2 and 3, the first part of verse 3, remind us about false shepherds and the ungodly actions of these false shepherds and the consequences that will come to them. And we're going to see that in verses 5 and 6, particularly this morning, and then through the end of the chapter, and it comes to a crescendo in verses 15 to 17 of this chapter. Um, What's happening in Zechariah's prophecy? What is the context of this chapter? Where does this chapter come from, and why does Zechariah, Zechariah say what he says? Remember, that this chapter is one of three chapters that began in chapter 9, verse 1, as a burden of the Lord. It's an oracle. It's a declaration. And for three chapters, starting in 9-1, God has been revealing His prophetic action against the nation. So if you just turn back a page or two, 9-1, the burden, that's that word oracle, declaration of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, with Damascus as its resting place, and etc. And so from chapter 9-1 through chapter 11-17, we have God's declaration against the nations. So this is part of that oracle against the nations. We're going to see another oracle that take up the last three chapters of this book, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So the last three chapters are what's coming for Israel. Now these chapters particularly are focused on the nations. And it's in that context that this judgment is coming. It's condemnation. And it is condemnation 
in the, these opening verses against the nations, though we're going to see it spill over against Israel and against Israel's false shepherds. And this chapter epitomizes everything about God's condemnation. In light of the hope of chapter 10, this chapter is a somber reminder to the Israelites, do not be complacent. It's a warning. Repent. It's a warning. Do not return to idolatrous worship. Do not forsake God. Yes, He has called you. Yes, He will regather you. Yes, the Messiah will be King. But don't assume it's going to be you. It could be a different generation. And so you must repent if you will enjoy the blessings of the Messiah. So let's think about this judgment that is coming, verses 1 to 3. Notice, first of all, the recipients of the judgment. Who is, who is Zechariah warning and who is he addressing? And if you'll notice, in verses 1 to 3, he has three nations or three regions in mind. Lebanon, verse 1, Bashan, verse 2, and Jordan, verse 3. And just by way of reminder, let me pull up the map that we found last week. And again, orient you on this map so that red arrow is pointing at the Sea of Galilee. So that's at the northern extent of what was inhabited by Israel at that time and still at the northern end uh, of what is inhabited by Israel today. When he says Lebanon, he's talking about that area far north, the Lebanese mountains. It is an, an area that has never been possessed in totality by the nation of Israel and certainly is not possessed by them today. Bashan is directly south of that, a little bit north of the promised land or a little bit north of the, the, the inhabited land and to the east of the River Jordan. And then here then is the Jordan River flowing from the Sea of Galilee down into the Dead Sea at the bottom. So those are the regions that are in mind by Zechariah as he addresses this area. What is important to notice is that he addresses them, verse 1, Lebanon, verse 2, Bashan, verse 3, Jordan, do you notice anything about progression? Not a trick question. It's moving from north to south. He's moving from the outside in. He's moving from the furthest extent of what has been promised to the, to the nation into the heart of what has been promised to the nation. He's moving from where the invaders would typically come far to the north and the east and they would come from Lebanon, through Lebanon, past Bashan, down into the Jordan, and then into Jerusalem, south of the Jordan. And so he has in mind the, all the invaders. When he uses these three terms, he has in mind the invaders that are coming from other places. But notice as well, all this is territory that has been promised to Israel. Israel has never possessed this land in its entirety, but it is promised to Israel. It's part of the Abrahamic covenant that is fulfilled in the Palestinian covenant and will yet one day be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. So have that in your head that as he's making these declarations, he's making it against the inhabitants of the land that should be possessed by Israel, but is not yet possessed by them. 
Notice as well that he is addressing the things that represent the wealth of those regions. So he says in verse 1, Open your doors, O Lebanon, that a fire may feed on your cedars. Cedars were massive trees. Some of them growing up to 120 feet tall. Some of them would be as much as 30 to 40 feet in in diameter, or excuse me, in circumference. They live an exceedingly long time. There are some trees, cedar trees, that are present on earth today that were present on earth when Christ walked this earth. 2,000 years these trees have been alive. They were strong. They were beautiful. They were valuable. They were used in the construction of Solomon's temple as well as in his personal home. They were absolutely, without a doubt, considered the preeminent tree of the, of the age. They were, they were undoubtedly the most valuable tree and considered the strongest and most prominent. Along with those, and they were then the wealth of Lebanon. If you see Lebanon mentioned in Scripture, it is very frequent that you will find cedars attached to Lebanon. Why? Because that's the thing for which they were known. There was abundant cedars in Lebanon. They're a little bit different than the scrubby things that we have around here, aren't they? Verse 2. In Bashan, he says, Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen. And not only the Cyprus, he says, Wail, O oaks. The cypress tree also was a very long-lasting tree. It was prized for construction, primarily of buildings, though also was used for furniture and idols, so it was used to make smaller things as well as bigger things. And as today, the oak then also was a symbol of strength, prominence. It was viewed in the scriptures as the most prominent of the deciduous trees. In a region in Bashan that was lush with vegetation, the cypress and oak trees were its most prominent Feature its most valuable resource. It was what was most important in that region. Notice what he says about the Jordan, verse 3. It is there that the sound of the shepherds will wail. Their glory is ruined. That is, the land that the shepherds use for shepherding their sheep is destroyed, vanquished. There's nothing that is edible that it remains on the land And there is a sound of the young lions roaring. Now, lions may not have been considered a valuable resource uh, to the Jordan region, but they were certainly in the region of the Jordan, and lions then, as now, were known for royalty and power and strength and dominion. In fact, we have that analogy in Scripture speaking about the Messiah. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And here, the lions roar. We we don't know exactly why they're roaring, but given the fact that there's no land for grazing for the sheep, and the sheep are decimated, there's nothing left for the shepherds to tend to, it seems that the lions may not be roaring so much in power and authority as in hunger and destitution. Even the most powerful has been brought low. So we have these three regions... Lebanon, Bashan, Jordan. 
And they represent the nations that held the land that ultimately belonged to Israel in the millennial kingdom. And note this, and that will be judged before the millennial kingdom. It's sobering. And then you got to sort out, okay, that's what Lebanon, Bashan, Jordan represent. That's pretty straightforward. What, what about the trees and the vegetation, the shepherds and the lion? It is not unusual in Scripture that things like trees represent both nations and individual leaders. So does a tree represent a leader? Sure. Think about poor old Nebuchadnezzar, who was a tree that would be chopped down and vanquished for seven years. And he's pictured as a tree. And it seems, I'm not dying on this hill, but it seems like what what Zechariah is pointing to in this prophecy is not just the nations, but the leaders of the nations, the most prominent, significant individuals in those nations that will be judged by God. And so the Lord is warning not just the nations, but the leaders. Judgment is coming. I want you to notice as well, not just the recipients of the judgment, but I want you to notice the devastation of the judgment. Verse 1, that a fire may feed on your cedars. That phrase denotes a complete destruction of the cedars. In fact, we get that, get that in the next phrase in chapter, in verse 2, Wail, O Cypress, for the cedar has fallen. The cedar is no, no longer upright. This majestic and powerful and strong tree has been burned to the ground to nothing. Now, you might think, well, yeah, I mean, a fire, that's what a fire does. But burning a tree, burning a forest to the ground is no easy feat. Recently, our family went on vacation to the mountains and went through a region that had been decimated by a forest fire a year ago. And that devastation was sobering and sad. All those trees that you're seeing there used to be lush and full and you couldn't see through those trees. And now they're just twigs. And we went up to those trees though and found something absolutely remarkable. Is that most of the places where the forest fire had gone, it had, it had taken out the branches. But even there, you can see in that picture, not all the branches, lots of branches still remained. And it took out the one or two inches of outer bark, and that was it. And the trees are still standing, by and large. All of them are standing. And so for Zechariah to say, these 120 foot tall trees, 30 feet in diameter, are destroyed and fallen to the ground is a stark reminder of the utter devastation that is coming in this judgment. And along with that, notice what he says in verse 2. Wail, O Cypress. And that word wail is a reference to um, grief and despair and lament. It's, it's used of howling and pain. And he says that, that those trees... The cypress and the oak are to wail because the cedar has fallen. The implication is, if the strongest tree has fallen, what chance do you have? None. 
If the greatest leader in the world will be vanquished by the Lord, what possibility does anyone else have? There's none. The devastation will be utter. And so he says, the cedar has fallen because the glorious trees have been destroyed. The impenetrable forest The forest that was so thick you couldn't penetrate it, walk through it, see through it. It's empty. Those who have said, I can't be defeated. Notice what he says in verse 2. Has come down. It will be judged. I want you to notice two other important parts of these warnings about the devastation. First, he calls them to wail. It's a command to grieve. And he also notes that if the greatest has fallen, they will fall as well. But then notice this one last component. Verse 1. Open your doors, O Lebanon. Now we talk about borders to nations and crossing the border. There's been a lot of talk in our own country about Borders in the last few years. If you go to the border, there's not actually a door at the border. Some are advocating, let's put up lots of, actually let's not just put up doors, let's put no doors and lots of wall. And God says to Lebanon, open your door. Let everybody in. And he means by that, there is a gate by which you are attempting to keep out the enemy. It's futility. Just open it up and let the one who is going to come in and destroy you, destroy you because you cannot keep him out. Open your doors. You will not be able to resist the one who is coming. Interestingly... A very similar phrase is used by the psalmist in Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Here, the gates of Israel are opened up and the King of glory comes marching in. Why? So that he can ascend to his throne and reign on his throne and provide comfort for his people. And then the psalmist continues that verse 8. Who's the King of glory? He is the Lord, strong, and mighty, mighty in battle. So lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The Lord of hosts. That same phrase that is used of God frequently in the book of Zechariah. Over 50 times in Zechariah, it refers to God as the Lord of hosts. The Lord of the armies. The Lord of all power and the Lord of all authority. He's coming in. In Psalms, He's coming in to protect His people. In Zechariah 11.1, He's coming to vanquish the enemy. And when they read that, they could not help but think about the inescapable devastation that would be coming from the Lord of hosts. When is this going to happen? 
When did or when will this judgment take place? Some have suggested that this is a reference to the judgment that came from the hand of Babylon that started in 605, five deportations of Judah to Babylon, 605, 597, 586 B.C. And some have suggested that it was then. It just doesn't seem likely that it was that that he's referring to because he's writing about 70 years after the last deportation and the nation has largely returned from Babylon The temple, by the time he's writing here in chapter 11, is probably nearly complete. And so it seems really unlikely that that's what he's talking about. Most, many, uh, relate this to the judgment of Israel at the rejection of the Messiah at his first coming and, and to the subjugation of the Romans of the nation of Israel and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And that certainly seems to be viable, given that that the Messiah is absolutely in view. So we see the first coming of the Messiah earlier in this oracle, in chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just. He's endowed with salvation. He's humble. He's mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we see that. In reference to the coming of the Messiah at the first advent. And we see another reference later in this chapter. Which Don I will get to in the next week or two. I'm not sure exactly when in all honesty. We see that in verse 12. I said to them if it is good in, if it is good in your sight give me my wages. But if not never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. And the Lord said to me throw it to the potter that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So the Messiah's value was 30 shekels of silver. Where do you see that? Judas and the betrayal. What happened to that money? It was thrown into the temple, fulfilling this prophecy. So most are inclined to see this being fulfilled in the subjugation of the Romans and then the desolation of Jerusalem after Christ's death and resurrection, A.D. 70. Now that certainly seems appropriate, and I honestly am inclined to see that fulfillment. But I think there's something more going on than that as well. The Romans did destroy Jerusalem. They did destroy the temple in A.D. 70. But that's, that's not everything that is being indicated here, is it? It's destruction over the whole land. Everything that Israel will possess in the millennial kingdom is destroyed. From the far north to the far south, all of it is decimated. And while the Romans subjugated all that area, not nearly all of it was decimated in that way. Jerusalem certainly was, but not the rest of the land. And so my inclination is to think that it's something more than just that. I also get this from the fact that there is someone else who is fighting and someone else who is regathering. We see this in chapter 10, verse 5. They will be, God's people will be as mighty men, treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets in battle, and they will fight. Why? Because... The Lord 
will be with them. They fight, but who's really fighting? It's the Lord's battle. It's the Lord's fight. Verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. That's the southern tribes and the northern tribes. I will bring them back because I have had compassion on them. And they will be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. It is God who is fighting for them. It is God who is regathering them. It is God who is bringing them into the land. And we see that throughout this section as well. This is God's regathering in a regathering that did, certainly didn't happen under Rome. Rome, in fact, didn't regather. Rome scattered the people to the nations. And here we have a regathering intimated in chapter 10 and then again in chapter 12. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is 12.8. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord Before them, in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. It's God's battle. It's God's fight. And so I think there are pieces of this that get fulfilled in the first century. I think ultimately the prophet is looking beyond the first century into what is coming in the millennial kingdom. In all of this, in all of this, Understand this, these verses are an intensely sobering warning of coming judgment. They're they're a harsh contrast to chapter 10, verses 9 to 12. It's a reminder of the full righteousness of God who rightly gives grace to those who trust in Christ and He unhesitatingly judges those who resist Him. You cannot Escape the judgment of God if you're not His. Don't buy that nonsense. Oh, in hell, I'll just hang out with my friends and drink beer. There is nothing good in hell. There are no friends. There is no good time. There is only bad time and only suffering and only wrath and only condemnation. And if you're not a follower of Christ, you cannot escape it. Which is why one of the commentators on this passage said, There is nothing in the world that is so disastrous as sin. You walk outside these doors and you have a world that flaunts sin. It's a good time. It's disastrous. It's devastating. Zechariah chapter 10 anticipates the rule of the Messiah on his throne, which will be so hopeful for us. And this chapter teaches and warns that before he establishes his kingdom, those who oppose him must and will be overcome. So one commentator writes, This messianic reign will bring great joy and satisfaction to the Lord's people, but only sorrow to his opponents. That's the coming judgment. 
verses 4 to 6, I want you to see as well the good shepherd and his rejection. The good shepherd and his rejection. Having delineated the, de- the de- devastation in the land, now verse 4, God begins to speak and he provides a reason for the coming of the judgment. Why is he so harsh? Why is such great devastation coming? And then along with that, he also begins providing a provision for the nation in the great shepherd, the Messiah. Notice, first of all, verse 4, the good shepherd. Yahweh speaking, the Lord. Thus says the Lord, my God, Zechariah says. Now he quotes God, middle of verse 4. Pasture, the flock that is doomed to slaughter. So God, Yahweh, commands Zechariah to shepherd, to pastor uh, the people that are destined for slaughter, the flock of slaughter. Zechariah is to perform a role of caring for the people in a way that the people's political and religious leaders to this point had not done. He's to act out the role of the shepherd, if, as it were. And this this idea that Zechariah is to act something out, no one really thinks that Zechariah actually did shepherd. He didn't get a shepherd staff and literally provide political leadership or religious leadership for the people. Um, That's not what it's talking about here. He's saying just image something for the people so that they see what the shepherd is supposed to be like. And that's that's common in the Old Testament. Hosea uh, pictured the um, adultery of the nation by marrying Gomer. Isaiah dressed as a prisoner of war. Jeremiah smashed pottery and wore shackles to denote the coming bondage to Babylon. Ezekiel carried out a variety of different images in chapters 4 through 12. And here Zechariah is called to do something similar. Look like a shepherd. Act like the great shepherd of the sheep of Israel. And his service is to serve, is to, to, to work as a role play to the people who are doomed to slaughter. That word doomed, that's in my translation, the New American Standard, is not actually in the text. Literally, the text reads, the flock of slaughter. The flock that has been prepared for slaughter. The flock that will be slaughtered. There's lots of different opinions about just about everything in this chapter among the commentators. Tons of opinions about all these different things. The one thing virtually every commentator is in agreement on in verse 4 The flock is Israel. And that just makes sense. It's a common image in the Old Testament that Israel is God's sheep, his flock, those whom he shepherds. And here he says that Zechariah is to go to shepherd, to care for, to lead, to nurture the flock that is prepared for slaughter, destined to be put to death. Why are they destined for death? Because they've been deceived by ungodly shepherds. We're going to see that in verses 16 and 17 particularly. But they're also destined because not only have they been following deceitful shepherds, but they are sinful themselves, rebellious themselves. We find that way back in chapter 1, verse 4. 
And they would continue to be rebellious. That rebellion would persist. So in Luke chapter 23, when the people are given the Messiah, and Pilate comes to them and says, I can release a prisoner. Would you like for me to release this king of yours? Luke 23, 18. And they cried out all together saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. And Pilate, the ungodly leader under Rome's dominion, wanted to release Jesus, addressed them again. And they kept on calling out, which has the sense of they kept on saying repeatedly over and over, crucify, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. That's why they're a flock for slaughter. They've rejected the shepherd. The only one that could save them. And they've rejected him. How did they reject him? I want you to notice this rejection in verses 5 and 6. Two particular components of these verses. Verse 5, we have the ungodly actions of the ungodly shepherds. Three things that these ungodly shepherds did. Those who buy them, slay them, and go unpunished. The sheep were a provision for the shepherds, and far more than that. The shepherds were given to the sheep to provide care. And that's a helpful image for those who serve as elders of the church. What do we do for the sheep? You don't kill them and eat them. You care for them, you nurture them, you provide for them, you protect them, you lead them to safety. You don't decimate them. And here, the shepherds who were to care for them killed them and ate them, devoured them. A lot of question about who those shepherds are. A lot of thing, a lot of folks think that they're equated to the nation's In verses 1 to 3, that's certainly possible. But I think the end of verse 4 gives, or excuse me, the end of verse 5 gives us a hint as to who they are. Where he says about the sheep, their own shepherds have no pity. I think he's talking not about outside nations. I think he's talking about the leaders of Israel, the national leaders, the political leaders, the religious leaders who should have cared for the people. And instead, they killed and devoured them. Not only do they do that, notice the second thing they do. They sell them and they say, Blessed be the Lord. I've become rich. They've taken advantage of them. They've used them for their own purposes. They've become wealthy and they have lied against God and said, This is God's blessing on my life. Look at what the, what you will, look at what God will do if you follow Him and all the material blessings He gives you. Doesn't that sound like a certain group of people that we have in our culture today? Not naming names. You have them in your head. You know who I'm talking about. They act for selfish gain. 
And they audaciously say it's provision for God. And the third thing they do is they have no pity on them. Those who should have had compassion, who should have had pity for the helplessness of the sheep are uncaring. They have been given for the sheep and instead they take advantage of the sheep. They were given to serve and they manipulated and schemed to their own advantage. No compassion. That word compassion refers to the character trait of being patient and gentle. God had that kind of compassion. We already alluded to it. Chapter 10, verse 6, right? He says, because I had compassion on them, they will be as though I had not rejected them. I was compassionate. I saw them and I took pity on them. And isn't that ironic? The God who is transcendent and is not a man, though Christ took on manhood, but the deity of God is not man. He takes pity. And those who are men who should have understood and should have had pity had none. Instead of being gentle, these shepherds are ruthless. And so there's judgment coming on them. There is also judgment coming because of verse 6. Here we have the righteous judgment by the compassionate God. So he says in verse 6, I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land. The shepherds didn't have pity, verse 7. So God says, my pity has ended. The idea is parallel to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. If you forgive then you will be forgiven by God. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Why? If you're not a forgiver, it indicates that God hasn't forgiven you. You've got to forgive. And it's the same thing here. If you're not compassionate, it indicates you haven't received compassion from God. And if you persist in that, I will withhold my compassion from you. And note that this... Lack of compassion by God is not just against the shepherds. It will be against them. But notice verse 6. I will no longer have pity, compassion, on the inhabitants of the land. Not just the shepherds, but also the sheep. Why? Because they're just as rebellious as the shepherds. Says one commentator, Sad was the lot of Israel when foreigners made merchandise of them. Worse was their condition when their own leaders showed them no pity. But worst of all, when God himself declares that he will no longer pity them, their plight has reached its climax. It cannot get any worse than this, that God says, no pity. It's a reminder That there are no excuses when one is rebellious against the Lord. No one can say, someone deceived me. I didn't know. I didn't understand. We all have revelation and there will be an accountability for all before the Lord. And those who rebel against him, notice what he says, I will cause the men to fall 
each into another's power, into the power of his king, the hand of his king, the authority of another king, and they will strike the land, and I will not deliver. I won't protect. I've always been your protector, but I will not protect. Certainly this sounds like something that happened when the Israelites were inhabited by Rome, right? I mean, they just came in, particularly in A.D. 70, and vanquished the land. But again, I think it's, I think it's way more than that. He's looking to an end time when the nation of Israel will be judged and then the remnant will be redeemed. And as a nation, they'll be led back into the land under the authority of the great King Jesus. And he will reign on his throne. Understand this. God has delivered Israel many times in the past. But this time, there will be no escape. The flock of God has become the flock of of slaughter because they rejected the shepherd. What do you do with this? Let me give you three lessons. One, God is wrathful. To say that God is wrathful means that he is committed to his righteousness. God's wrath is his righteous response, his retribution against everything and everyone unholy. To say that God is wrathful means that God is just. He doesn't just wink at sin. He doesn't overlook it. He takes every single sin seriously. He is aware of every single sin. And he will righteously, fairly judge every sin, every sinner. No one escapes. He's omniscient. He, he knows everything. Nothing goes missed by him. Sometimes his wrath is his judgment against sin now. Right? So think about Genesis 9 and the flood. Think about Acts chapter 5 and the judgment on Ananias and Sapphira and a host of others. Sometimes his wrath is not just against sin now, but sometimes his wrath is is pulling back his grace on people and just saying, if you don't want me, fine, you don't have me. And he lets people suffer the natural consequences of their sin. That's Romans 1. And sometimes it's final judgment. And that is the place where all will end. And it is that that is intimated in this chapter. You will not escape God's wrath. But understand that at the same time, God is also compassionate. Despite his wrath, God pities people in their poor condition. A student asked the anthropologist Margaret Mead on one occasion, they were talking about a particular culture, and he asked, when, when did it When did it become evident that this culture was becoming civilized? And he thought she might say something like, well, when they developed clay pots or when they developed fishing hooks or a grinding stone to sharpen knives to 
provide for themselves? Her answer was a healed femur. Why? Because in the law of the jungle, where only the fit survive, a healed fever, femur means someone cared. Someone cared enough to take care of that person, to help them get the medical attention they need, and then provide for them while the leg healed and they couldn't go and gather their food for themselves. Someone cares. That's compassion. And brothers and sisters, God has compassion in infinite quantities. Let no one ever say, God doesn't care. In His compassion, He sent a shepherd to Israel, a shepherd that was exemplified by Zechariah. And in compassion, that shepherd went to the cross to die for my sin. Don't say He doesn't care. He cared with the greatest kind of sacrifice imaginable. In His compassion, God is patient. He is patient with our failures. He's patient with our sins for a time. God is eternally patient. And by that we mean God will never stop being patient in His nature and in His attributes. And He is infinitely patient. That is, there is no limit to the breadth of His patience. But His patience is not eternal and infinite with all people. That is to say, there is a time when people persist in their rebellion against Him. He says, that's it. I'm done. He is patient. He is compassionate. But don't miss the point of the patience. It's designed to bring us to repentance. We don't have time to flesh it out. Romans 2, 4. It's designed to bring you to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9. And when repentance is rejected and when one is confirmed in that rejection of repentance... God will stop being patient towards that individual and He will judge. Yes, He's patient. But on earth there is a limit to that for those who are unregenerate. For those who are His. For those who trust Christ. There is no end to His patience. You will have it eternally. And that's our good news. Third lesson. Repentance is vital. The word repentance is not in this passage. But it's not difficult to pull back the curtain of the words and see it lurking right in the background, is it? In chapter 10, verse 9, the people are regathered. I will scatter them among the peoples and they will remember me in far countries And they, with their children, will live and come back. They remember God. What does that mean? It means they remember Him, His promises, His provision, and they repent, and He brings them back in life. Repentance is, in this immediate context, repentance is one of the foundations of this book. And the sober warning of this passage implies 
that if we don't stop rebelling, if we don't repent, he will judge. What does it mean to repent? To repent means to turn to God for help with our sin. To trust that he will remove the guilt of our sin. To believe that he will give us an ability to fight against sin and live for him eternally. And Jesus is the great shepherd who is anticipated in this passage. And he, and he, as the great shepherd, is the object of that trust. We believe that he paid our debt of sin. We believe that it's worth obeying him. Oh, friend, do not be like that photographer that we giggled at earlier who missed the point of the places he visit, visited. Do not miss the point of life, which is to repent and follow the shepherd of Israel, Jesus Christ. We giggled at those pictures. There will be no humor on judgment day, only wailing, only sorrow. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ, I exhort you, believe today. There is a judgment that is coming that you cannot escape There is a life that Christ gives that is infinitely worth living. And God is compassionate, but there is an immense danger in rejecting him. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you, not because it was trivial and light, easy, but we thank you for its soberness. For, frankly, at times we need soberness. We need clarity We need understanding of what will come at the end. We need realization of the immensity of who you are and your wrath. And so we thank you for this passage because it's a great reminder of the judgment that's coming. And it's a great reminder of your astounding provision for us. And so would you cause us to consider that with all seriousness And even find joy in what we have been spared from as believers in Christ. And joy in declaring the message of hope from a God who is wrath. From a Savior, by a Savior who has fulfilled all of God's wrath against us. And so, might we find delight in you because of what we've been spared from. And might we find delight in you by being fit vessels to carry a message of hope to a wayward world. We pray these things in Christ's name.